Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today we are talking about the politics of higher education in Indonesia. Compared to other Asian countries, Indonesia's tertiary education institutions have long performed poorly in global university rankings. Among the various deficits that are routinely recorded for Indonesian universities are low teaching and research quality, inadequate levels of knowledge transfer and a lacking international outlook. The Indonesian government has repeatedly expressed its concern about the dismal results in the rankings, but despite a number of initiatives to transform the country's leading universities into world-class institutions, the higher education sector remains riddled with problems. So why do Indonesian universities struggle to deliver better academic programs? What reforms have been attempted and why have they failed? Who are the actors and organizations involved in the politics of higher education in Indonesia? Joining me today to discuss these and other questions about the state of higher education in Indonesia is Professor Andrew Rosser from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. Andrew, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Andrew, you've done a lot of research on the issues around um, higher education in Indonesia, but perhaps we provide some context for this research first. It may be useful to begin by outlining some key features of the Indonesian higher education sector. How many universities are there in Indonesia and how many Indonesians study at tertiary education institutions? All right, thanks, Dirk. Look, it's important to distinguish between higher education institutions in general and universities specifically. Indonesia's higher education sector is very diverse and it uh, includes a total, according to the Ministry for Research Technology and Higher Education, around 3,200 higher education institutions. Now, of that number, only 532 are universities. The rest comprise institutes, there's a very small number of them, Skolatingi or colleges, there's about 1,400 of them, academies, about 1,000. So there are an awful lot of institutions, but a relatively small number of universities. When it comes to students studying in the system, though, the students are overwhelmingly concentrated in the university. So overall, there's around about 6.1 million higher education students, 4.1 million of them are studying in universities. There's also, of course, a broad division between state and private institutions. The state institutions are very small in number, but quite large relative to private institutions in enrolments. But over, overall, the private sector accounts for around about two-thirds of enrolments and the state sector around about one-third of enrolments. Mm, interesting figures. So the funding models for the private and the public universities would be quite different, I assume. Can you give us a little bit of information about how the sector is funded? Look, there's not a great deal of transparency around how Indonesian higher education institutions and universities in particular are funded, but broadly it looks like this. Private institutions are overwhelmingly reliant upon tuition fees for their funding. They get a little bit of state money, but not a lot. The state institutions rely on state funding, but increasingly are generating their own revenues, primarily through tuition fees. And that's particularly the case with the leading state universities who in recent years have set up programs like International Program or Extension Program, which are essentially full fee-paying programs and target a different type of student to their regular programs. But those sorts of programs have become an important source of revenue. 
Yeah, thanks. I think we'll come back to that issue a bit later. Sticking with the distinction between public and private institutions, just briefly, some of the most well-known Indonesian universities, such as the University of Indonesia, or Gajamara University in Yogyakarta, the Bandung Institute of Technology in Bandung, they're all public universities. And they are the most prominent and well-known universities overseas. How come that the state universities are so much more prominent and generally regarded as performing better than the private institutions? Well, look, for a start, the public universities, and in particular the top public universities, are much larger than the private universities. If you look at overall enrolments in Indonesian higher education institutions, there's enormous variety. So a university like the University of Indonesia has over 40,000 students, whereas some of the smaller private ones might only, they might have less than 100 students. The major public universities are really quite large institutions. They're relatively well funded, as I said before. They get the bulk of state funding. They also have been around, in some cases at least, for for quite a long time and have the prestige associated with age and tradition. My sense is that Indonesian public universities have historically acted as a pathway into the national civil service. Uh, as well and a civil service job is even today quite a prized thing in the past that was certainly the case so if you aspired to be a civil servant going off to one of the major public universities was a good way of following that career path. So the private universities are a more recent phenomenon they don't have the prestige the age the history who is behind the explosion or mushrooming of these private institutions who runs them and how are they managed? Well, good, good data is hard to get, but to the extent that there is data around, it suggests that the private, you know, I mean, a lot of private universities have been around for quite some time, but they really started to grow strongly in the early 1980s. In the late 70s and the early 80s, the new water put an awful lot of money into education, but overwhelmingly it went into the school sector and into the recruitment of teachers. In higher education, the new order decided to take more of a hands-off approach. It didn't establish uh, many new public universities in contrast to the school sector where it uh, established large numbers of new university, uh, new schools. Rather, the new order allowed the private sector to take the lead in meeting growing demand for, uh, for higher education. What was the motivation behind that policy? Why do you think the New Order sort of neglected state funding for higher education while at the same time funding large primary education programs? Well, I suspect there were two dynamics at work. I mean, one was an economic one. It would have been costly for the New Order to establish a whole lot of new public universities. Education spending in general wasn't a priority for the New Order. So it was an area, I think, where the New Order felt it could probably avoid having to spend any additional money. The other dynamic was more political, I think, and that has to do with the sort of nation-building um, objectives that the New Order and previous Indonesian governments had. The school system was the best way of extending the reach of the public sector and the sort of patronage networks that centred on it out into the regions, promoting the use of the national language and promoting a, um, a commitment to the state and to Indonesian national identity. Yeah, which brings us to the political interests behind education, and that's the main focus of your research. We've talked a bit about the private institutions so far, and um, the, those people who have established these private institutions, um, I assume, have a strong interest in shaping education policy. But at the same time, we also know that 
at least during the new order, policymaking was quite centralized in Jakarta and the ministries and then the bureaucracy. So who evolved to become the main players in making higher education policies? Well, look, oddly enough, higher education policy in Indonesia tends to centre on the public sector rather than the private sector. Um, I mean, in, in relation to a couple of key controversial higher education policy issues, the private universities and their owners have mobilised and, and, and played an important role in shaping the outcome of, uh, of struggles over policy. But really the key players in relation to higher education are within the public sector. They're the officials of the, the state, particularly the education ministry and the religious affairs ministry, which have overseen historically the higher education system. More recently with the Ministry of Research, Technology and Higher Education taking control of higher education policy, it's become important as well. Uh, the major state universities are really, really important players. Uh, they often operate behind the scenes, but they're enormously influential. And through a variety of mechanisms, I mean, one is, you know, quiet conversations behind closed doors between rectors and, and ministry officials. But the other is because those universities themselves are a key recruiting ground for the ministry. I mean, it's very common for the minister of uh, it's been very common for the Minister of Education to be drawn from the pool of rectors of the major state universities or perhaps um, from the deans in those universities. Likewise, director generals within the Education Ministry have often been recruited from the state universities and similarly within the Religious Affairs Ministry. So there are all these kind of key connections between the major state universities and the national government, particularly those departments responsible for education. You have, in more recent times, particularly since the fall of the new order, see student groups become more active. I mean, very often they focus on national political issues, but where there is um, a big higher education issue, they will mobilise, as they did uh, in relation to the education legal entities uh, law. Some NGOs have also been active in relation to education policy issues and higher education specifically. So it's actually quite a diverse set of actors that are, that are involved now in, um, in shaping higher education policy. The input from NGOs and student organisations is probably a fairly new thing, a fairly recent thing. I can't imagine them having much influence during the new order. So they would be confronted with practices in the bureaucracy, in the ministries of education and religious affairs that have sort of become institutionalised for over a long period of time. Has there been change in how education policies are being approached in the ministries after 1998 or is it still more or less same players, same approach, same policies? Well look, the key change since 1998 is neoliberal reform within the higher education sector and in fact Amongst my list of key actors in uh, the higher education sector in Indonesia, I should have mentioned government technocrats and donors. The key change since 1998 has been that, um, at least for a period anyway, those two actors, donors and government technocrats, have had an increased say in the nature of higher education policy. The Asian financial crisis and the period of economic recovery that followed 
provided an opportunity for these elements to push forward a market-oriented reform agenda in relation to higher education that had three main elements. The big political issue was institutional autonomy for educational institutions in general, but for, for higher education institutions in particular accreditation and monitoring of quality and then the third big issue was the entry of foreign universities. So that's the key shift that's taken place politically and in terms of policy and then you know the period since maybe 2004-2005 has really been about struggles over those policy initiatives and how they play out. Yeah, you mentioned those three areas of autonomy, accreditation and um, internationalization and We'll come back to that in a second. Just want to briefly get an idea of the sort of the relation or the, the balance of power, so to speak, between the technocrats um, within the Indonesian government who presumably work hand in hand with the donor community to push for neoliberal reforms. And on the other hand, the old established elite who prefer to do things the old way. So are they more or less evenly matched or was there a high period for the neoliberal agenda maybe immediately after 1998 when the World Bank in particular was very active pushing its agenda in Indonesia? Look, I would say overall the balance of power lies with the, with the old established interests rather than the technocrats. There was a particular moment in time following the, the fall of the new order the Asian financial crisis where technocrats and donors were able to push through policies that in normal times they would not have been able to get through. They continue to have some influence though because I think of a broader recognition in Indonesia that if the country is to remain economically competitive into the future and in particular if it is to restructure away from a reliance upon low-wage manufacturing and natural resources it needs a, a more internationally competitive education system and in fact if you look through education ministry strategic plans and the like over the last few years you see a very strong emphasis on the need for Indonesia to develop a quote-unquote internationally competitive education system and higher education Uh, system in particular. There are frequent references to Indonesia developing quote-unquote world-class universities. There are references in these reports to a need for Indonesia to have quote-unquote smart and competitive citizens. So, you know, there's definitely a recognition at the level of rhetoric and broad policy of a need for a better education system and higher education system in particular. And so that does allow some space for the World Bank, for government technocrats and the like to continue to have a say on policy. Yeah, if we now look at the three issues that you mentioned in a bit more detail, if that's been pushed for at least 10, 15 years now, where are we at now? Do To start with the first issue, autonomy, do Indonesian universities now enjoy greater autonomy in managing their own affairs, in generating income? Or to what extent are they still being directed, being guided by directives from the ministries and the bureaucracies? Well, look, the whole issue of university autonomy kicked off in the late 1990s when, following the fall of the new order, the government issued a regulation giving seven leading public universities what was called BHMN status. Uh, that essentially granted them autonomy over their own Uh, over their own affairs. 
gradually over time that autonomy agenda expanded to the point where in 2009 the national parliament passed a new law on education legal entities that in effect transformed all public educational institutions including schools and higher education institutions into Badanhukum Pendidikan or education legal entities. Now in basic terms this effectively transformed these institutions into something equivalent to a state-owned enterprise and as such granted them you know not just autonomy over intellectual and academic matters but also over their financial and managerial affairs. Prior to the introduction of the BHMN regulation, Indonesian universities and schools were units within the bureaucracy. Effectively, they were parts of the bureaucracy. So the, the BHP law, the, the Badanhukum Pendidikan law, transformed these institutions into yes, something equivalent to state-owned enterprises. It was contested successfully in the constitutional court. The law was annulled. In response, the education ministry responded by agreeing with parliament to the enactment of a new law, this time just on higher education, that provided for a variety of different legal forms for higher education institutions in Indonesia. And in the wake of that, a group of 11 public universities have been granted what is now called badan hukum, or just legal entity status. And they include the initial seven that were granted BHMN status back in the late 90s, plus an additional four. And you know the sorts of universities that have been given this status are basically the top public universities, so the University of Indonesia and Gajamada and a few others. Many of the other public universities have been granted something called BLU status. This is a status that means these institutions remain part of the bureaucracy, so they have a much lower level of autonomy than the universities given Badan Hukum status, but they do have a bit more control over their own finances than had previously been the case. So I think, you know, what we've seen is some real lurching in policy and I think a settling around a kind of compromise, a political compromise, whereby a small group of universities have been given a relatively high degree of autonomy and the rest have been given relatively little. And I suspect the government is actually reasonably happy with this because a key driver of the autonomy regulation in the late 90s and subsequently the, the BHP law subsequently was to try to allow the very top state universities in Indonesia to become um, internationally competitive ones down the, down the track. So that's where things are at. I mean, in, in essence, the autonomy agenda has not gone that far. A small number of universities have managed to, to get a bit more autonomy than, you know, than they used to have. Yeah, certainly in the bigger scheme of things compared to the absolute numbers of universities, seven or even 11 is, is a really small number. Can you give us a few examples maybe of what the universities have done with this new autonomy? Have they put it into action, into tangible results? or? Well, look, initially when autonomy was introduced back in the late 1990s, it led to massive increases in university fees. And this is one of the reasons why there was so much opposition to the autonomy regulations. And in particular from student groups. Student groups mobilised quite strongly against the push towards greater autonomy. 
Another part of the political compromise that's been reached now is that the sorts of fees that public universities can charge is regulated by the national government. The exception, of course, are programs like those ones I mentioned earlier, extension programs or international programs, which are delivered on a full fee-paying basis. The second issue or the second sort of dimension of this agenda you said is accreditation. Um, so what's been happening in that field? Why has accreditation been problematic in the past and why is this on the agenda for the um, technocrats? The government introduced accreditation arrangements as a way of trying to monitor and ensure quality in the higher education system. When it was initially introduced, and even today I think it's, it's conceived largely as a way of trying to ensure quality in the private higher education sector. The working assumption seems to be that the state universities are the model that all Indonesian universities or other higher education institutions should follow. They are the benchmark, but uh, there are some real problems in the private system. So that was the origin of the thinking. The big issue with accreditation in Indonesia has been that the agency that's responsible for doing it, Ban Pete, has been severely underfunded and has found it very, very difficult to get around and accredit all 4,000 or so higher education institutions that there are in the country. And of course, they have to accredit not just the institutions, but all the academic programs that they run. Now, that's a massive exercise, requires a lot of resources, and Ban Pete has not been furnished with those resources, much to the distress of the private higher education sector, which you know, now finds itself in a situation where Uh, many private universities or other higher education institutions have not been properly accredited and under other regulations that can provide a rationale for the government to shut them down. So they're very keen for the government to push ahead with accreditation to properly fund UNPT or alternatively, um, and this is kind of a key demand that APTISI, the institution that represents private higher education institutions in Indonesia, has asked for, or alternatively allow for another organisation, private one, and with the support of APTISI, to carry out that accreditation on the government's behalf. Do international donor organisations also have a say in this, or is this a purely um, domestic exercise? Look, it's possible they do. I'm unaware of any donors that are actively working in this uh, area. That's not to say that there aren't some. I imagine donors would be quite sympathetic towards the whole accreditation push. But international actors would certainly have a strong interest in the third area of forms that you've mentioned earlier, the internationalization, the international outlook, um, which is something where Indonesian universities are very strongly lagging behind its neighbours. What's happening in that field? Why is it still not possible for international universities to set up campuses in Indonesia, for example? The first thing I should say here is that under the 2012 higher education law, it in fact is formally possible for foreign higher education institutions to set up in Indonesia in collaboration with a local partner. So the law does provide space for foreign universities to set up in Indonesia. The issue is that the particular provision providing for foreign university entry says that the government must first issue 
a regulation fleshing out the details of this particular policy and that implementing regulation has not yet been issued by the government. This has been a way for the government to essentially stall on the issue. Now, the reason it's done so is essentially because there's just too much opposition within the higher education sector itself towards the entry of foreign higher education institutions. The reality is that if half-decent foreign universities or other sorts of higher education institutions were to set up in Indonesia, they would be better than the very best Indonesian universities and they would attract students from those universities, whether they're state or private. I think there's a lot of anxiety. You know, the most vocal groups on this issue have been the private universities, but my sense is that it's actually the major state universities that are most anxious about this particular prospect. And I think quietly behind closed doors, they're putting pressure on the ministry, which of course is full of, you know, former rectors and deans and so on from the major state universities to go slowly on this particular issue. So the strategy seems to be at the moment to stall and use the time to try and build up at least the top few state universities so they can get to a point where, you know, if some sort of second tier or third tier Western university comes and sets up in Indonesia, they can actually compete. Yeah, and one of the candidates for that competition would certainly be the University of Indonesia. Mm. That's one of the top ranked universities in Indonesia. I think it was for a long time the one that has been performing best in the international rankings. And in particular, a few years ago, it seemed to have initiated quite a few new strategies that improved research output and it improved its rankings. But then it dropped again and there was so a lot of controversy about the internal politics at that university. Can you um, elaborate on that a bit? What happened with that drive at that particular university to make it more internationally competitive and what the backlash was. Yeah, so look, the University of Indonesia is generally regarded as the country's top university. And a few years ago, they elected the then dean of the Faculty of Social and Political Sciences, Gumilar, to be their new rector, an Indonesian uh, rectors at public universities are popularly elected. Um, and he set about trying to introduce a whole variety of new arrangements that he argued were about trying to transform the University of Indonesia into a world-class institution. One thing he did was appoint some staff to research specialist positions. Um, he invested in new infrastructure, a massive new library complex, uh, IT facilities. He put in place some financial management changes, which really were all about rationalising the way in which the University of Indonesia managed its finances. So a lot of financial control was centralised. Previously, it had been quite decentralised, and in particular in the hands of faculty deans. The, the faculties at the University of Indonesia had operated almost like um, you know, little fiefdoms on their own. He tried to uh, centralise a lot of managerial and financial control in the, um, in the centre. He dramatically reduced the number of tax file numbers that the university had, the number of bank accounts that the university had, and so on. And there was a huge backlash. He ended up facing allegations of corruption and eventually he was brought down in the face of uh, massive resistance from both staff and students and in fact from the wider community to a certain extent because you know, the University of Indonesia is an incredibly well-networked institution and they were able to draw in a lot of people from outside the institution to support them. So his story, in my reading of it at least anyway, 
kind of reveals the political risks that are associated with at least a short, sharp, dramatic set of moves to try and transform one of these major state universities into something that is genuinely world-class, at least through the adoption of kind of neoliberal managerial reform. Now, his experience, as far as I'm aware, is unique. I'm just not aware of you know, any of the other major state universities doing the same sort of thing. I think their rectors have probably concluded that they're on a loser if they try to do the same thing. Uh, that doesn't bode well for <laughs> future reforms <laughs> in Indonesia then. How do you, if looking ahead perhaps a few years, um, with that assessment in mind, how do you see the prospects of any reforms in this sector happening then? I mean, the government seems to be committed to improving the reputation, the international reputation of its universities, but at the same time seems to be stalling on reforms. So how do you see that play out perhaps in the next three or five years? Look, there is a lot of anxiety in Indonesia about the effects of the ASEAN economic community, the sort of relatively free flow of labour between countries within the ASEAN region that that will produce, and what it means for the competitiveness of Indonesian labour. I think you know a key part of the push towards the development of a world-class university system, an internationally competitive education system, the production of smart and competitive Indonesians and so on has been a recognition that you know, Indonesian labour is not terribly competitive compared to much other labour that's available within the Southeast Asian region. So there are some quite significant pressures there for Indonesia to do something in relation to higher education. The issue really is what it does and over what period of time. I suspect things will get to a crunch point at some time in the not-too-distant future where Indonesia has to eventually buckle in and allow the establishment of foreign universities in the same way that Malaysia has and Singapore and you know one or two other places because I suspect that they will just recognise that the time and resources that are required to get a place like the University of Indonesia or um, Gajamada or any of the other major state universities up to a point where they're genuinely internationally competitive. It's all just going to take too long and, and involve too much cost. It would be much better to allow you know, a few foreign universities to set up in Indonesia um, and you know, in a relatively quick period of time they could have an internationally competitive higher education system. Okay, we shall wait and see. <laughs> Thanks very much, Andrew. That was Professor Andrew Rossa from the University of Melbourne speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 28th of September for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and till next time.